0: Evidence-based medicine has been gaining momentum among the medical community, but there are things happening in our nation's capital that could impact this coming trend. Welcome to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Bruce Japson, the healthcare reporter with the Chicago Tribune, and joining me today is Dr. Les Paul. Dr. Paul is Vice President of Clinical and Scientific Affairs for the National Pharmaceutical Council, a Washington-based group focused on evidence-based medicine for healthcare decision making. A board-certified pulmonologist and internist, Dr. Paul has more than 25 years of healthcare experience. Prior to joining NPC, he was Vice President for U.S. Medical Affairs at Novartis Pharmaceutical Corporation and held many other roles in the pharmaceutical industry. Dr. Paul has a Master's Degree in Health Administration from the University of Wisconsin and a Doctor of Medicine from the University of Illinois. He joins us today from his offices in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Dr. Les Paul, welcome to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Thank you, Bruce. Glad to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. And if you could, there's just such a buzz now about evidence-based medicine. And if you could talk a little bit about first about the National Pharmaceutical Council and what it's doing in regard to evidence-based medicine and also what's happening in our nation's capital that could foster more growth of this or or perhaps go the other way.
1: Thank you, Bruce. NPC is a research and education association supported by the innovative pharmaceutical industry. And we sponsor and conduct scientific analyses on the appropriate use of pharmaceutical. Pharmaceuticals, and the clinical and economic value of improved health outcomes through pharmaceutical innovation. Comparative effectiveness research and evidence-based medicine is a very important area of focus for us and a foundation of high-quality scientific evidence is very, very important to the interests of the pharmaceutical industry as well as to improving patient health outcomes. It's our goal to ensure that sound evidence is recognized by independent experts considered appropriately by private and public payers reflected adequately in benefit designs, and incorporated appropriately into clinical practice. The pharmaceutical industry spends more than $65 billion each year on research and development, and we generate many thousands of clinical studies each year. In Washington, recently, your listeners may know that there was $1.1 billion of funding provided in the economic stimulus package, and that at the moment is being prioritized in terms of areas of spending, but it will be divided between the Department of Health and Human Services, the National Institutes of Health, and the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality.
0: And in this evidence-based medicine money for the stimulus, how will that differ from how it's used today? And perhaps you could describe this. It's, I think evidence-based medicine is already being used like by the health insurance industry, for example. Will this just be an expansion of that and something that maybe doctors already know, or will it be different?
1: This represents a substantial degree of new funding for, uh, at least public funding, for comparative effectiveness research. The Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality has been funded to do this work since the Medicare Modernization Act was passed in 2005 through something that's called the Effective Healthcare Program. But that funding was only in the range of 15 to $30 million. And so now we're talking about $1.1 billion of new money, public money for funding of new studies that hopefully will be focused on improving the quality of care and reducing the cost of care and improving geographic variation in care, at least unnecessary geographic variation in care.
0: Um, Could you perhaps walk maybe one of our physician listeners through perhaps how this could play out in their practice uh, with evidence-based medicine because it's something that they hear a lot about, but perhaps they're not yet seeing in their practice, either perhaps something that's going on today or perhaps something that could happen in the near future.
1: Physicians are increasingly constrained for time, so there's an increasing pressure to receive compensation directly based upon key evidence-based medicine performance measures And with the huge increase in the number of available facts for for each decision that physicians need to make, decisions are becoming more complex. Most physicians spend about four hours a week reading the medical literature, and with time pressure increasing, this number may be impacted over time. Busy physicians tend to rely more on clinical summaries and practice guidelines and have a little less time for rigorous appraisals of primary evidence unless that evidence is truly groundbreaking and applicable to their practice. So I think it's going to be very important as all of this new evidence becomes increasingly available that physicians appropriately read that evidence, evaluate that evidence, make sure that the results are valid. You know, is there a strong, independent, consistent association, for example, between a surrogate endpoint such as blood pressure and cholesterol and a clinical endpoint that's important to them? What were the results? How large and precise and lasting was the treatment effect? Well, the results help them in caring for their patients and making increasingly complicated decisions? So I think it will be very, very important that physicians spend time in, in looking at methodologies associated with new comparative effectiveness research and make sure that they apply them appropriately, interpret them, and apply them appropriately in their given practices.
0: Is there a certain way that physicians are seeing evidence-based research now It's not like it has a label per se. I sort of think of of some of the things that I run into either from the drug and device industry where, you know, from a competitive standpoint, you see more head-to-head studies than you used to and perhaps even a press release notifying this. I mean, are there things like that that they're going to see or will it just be some insurance company type bean counter person behind the curtain saying, well, evidence shows that this is not as good and therefore we won't cover it?
1: Well, I think this is not a, you know, the topic of evidence-based medicine and comparative effectiveness is actually not a new topic for most physicians. It's just a topic that has been evolving and accelerating in terms of trend over the last 10 or 15 years. So physicians are quite used to looking at large comparative trials, many of which are, are funded by the pharmaceutical industry, but not all of them and interpreting the data associated with those trials for their individual practice and their individual specialties. I think the volume of this research is increasing. The focus of the research may be changing a little bit. The nature of the methodologies may be evolving. But the basic fundamental challenge for physicians is to incorporate as much of the relevant data that's going to be coming out in peer-reviewed journals for their individual decision-making. And the decision support methodologies for packaging that information in a way that's easily Uh, digestible with all the number of increasing number of facts available for each clinical decision will be a very big challenge.
0: Well, if you're just joining us, or even if you're new to our channel, you're listening to Rich MD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Bruce Japson of the Chicago Tribune. I'm your host. And joining me today is Dr. Les Paul, who's the Vice President of Clinical and Scientific Affairs for the National Pharmaceutical Council. And we're talking about evidence-based medicine. There was a billion dollars with a b in the stimulus package to go toward such things as comparative effectiveness and evidence-based medicine and we were just talking with Dr. Paul about sort of the volume of research that's already inundated in physicians offices from drug companies and other people on on you know what they're to prescribe and what's the best at this or that do you think or is there a hope that this could be made a little simpler? I mean, would this be perhaps streamlined by the government when, if they're talking about putting a billion dollars forth just to make it easier on physicians so they don't have to spend so much time evaluating products?
1: It's a really critical question, Bruce. Right now, most of the energy in Washington is focused on new evidence generation. And a little bit less energy is focused on appropriate interpretation and individual application of that evidence. And so it will be very, very critical for decision support methodologies to be made available to physicians so that it is easier to package and interpret that information. And that really is directly related to the adoption of the evidence. So if you already have high-quality evidence, I think it's in everybody's best interest to have a, a, a very rapid diffusion of that evidence Evidence into clinical practice. In 2003, there was a very important study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine that Rand conducted that looked at the amount of high quality evidence that was already being utilized by physicians in key conditions. And unfortunately, there was documentation that maybe two thirds of patients with hypertension were receiving recommended care based on already available clinical evidence. And there were similar examples, like 61%, for example, of participants with myocardial infarction who were appropriate candidates for aspirin actually received aspirin therapy. So there's already quite a bit of evidence that's out there to support high-quality care, and diffusion and adoption of that evidence where it makes sense and where it's reasonable from a patient care point of view will be increasingly important. So decision support methodologies will become critical as more and more evidence is being generated.
0: And when you talk about new evidence generation, could you sort of compare that with what's kind of been out there? Like, what, what do they mean by that? Like, just how it comes about, or if you could break that down a little bit.
1: The categories of evidence that have been available and will be increasingly available start with randomized controlled trials. So you said head-to-head, that's one example of a, of a randomized controlled trial. Prospective or retrospective cohort studies, for example, cross-sectional studies. These are all different types of methodologies that have different degrees of rigor. They all have strengths and limitations, and so it will be very, very important for physicians when they evaluate the literature to first look at the quality of the study and make sure that, that the quality is high And that the strengths of of recommendations that come as a result of those studies is also very good so that they know how to factor the strengths and weaknesses of a study appropriately as they're making clinical decisions.
0: Now, I'm not sure if physicians necessarily want this or not, but is there a possibility that what could come out of this could be like some sort of a government seal of approval that says this product is better than that product? I mean, or, or is that even something that your members would want?
1: My answer to that would be, we hope not. (laughs) I think we have examples from international health technology assessment programs that are conducted in other countries, like National Institute of Clinical Effectiveness in the U.K., and we also have other organizations around the world where there are arbitrary cutoff decisions made based on say cost per quality adjusted life years saved. And we don't want that in the United States. And, And I think in some of those countries, some very important decisions had to be revisited when new information became available.
0: Could you give us an example because that that's actually a good point because when you, you know, in a year where you're talking about health care reform and saving money and why isn't something as cheap in Europe as it is here, could you give me an example of how perhaps that comparative effectiveness or evidence based system works and perhaps maybe in a way that it's good or bad?
1: The NICE program in the UK sets on a subjective basis, they set a threshold above which the recommendations are not to provide coverage in the national health system. And I think there you have issues like no coverage for effective but high-cost cancer drugs for terminal patients, no coverage at least until recently for any drugs for multiple sclerosis, no coverage for one-half of osteoporosis drugs that are available in the United States, no coverage for macular degeneration treatments unless already unless a person has already unfortunately lost sight in one eye no coverage for Alzheimer's drugs in early disease stages so those are the kind of fairly dramatic results that you get when you set an arbitrary threshold based on cost per quality adjusted life year saved and i don't think and i think our member organizations would say that that culturally is not a good fit for the united states
0: are there any examples in other countries that where they do do evidence-based medicine well?
1: Well, I think that each of these countries, has. there there are things we can learn from these countries. It's not to say that everything they do is not done well. I think the assessment process for evidence evaluation has done pretty well in many of these countries. So I don't mean to say that, that the result that I described is certainly a situation that applies in all cases. There are some learnings for the United States about how we might do things differently based on our needs in the United States.
0: And Dr. Paul, where do you see this heading in the future?
1: This is not an endeavor that's going to result in a dramatic change in either healthcare quality or cost reduction in the United States in the short term. But I think over time, if comparative effectiveness research is done correctly and if it's done with high quality and rigor, I think physicians and patients will benefit from having more data available available. For which to make choices, and hopefully, that investment will continue on the part of both the industry and government. And I think we would like to see a public private partnership and a transparent dialogue as this conversation moves forward.
0: Well, with that, I'd like to thank Dr. Les Paul, who's been our guest. He's the Vice President of Clinical and Scientific Affairs for the National Pharmaceutical Council. And we've been talking about evidence based medicine. It's a topic that's gaining momentum and has been fueled by a billion dollars from the recent economic stimulus package that was passed in Washington. My name's Bruce Japson of the Chicago Tribune. I've been your host, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on the air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, and I'd like to thank you today for listening.